Genesis 34. This is the word of God. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as, a, as, a, as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Amen. We thank God for his word. Genesis 34. And before we preach, let's pray. Father, these are hard words, and yet they're your words, and we pray that we might have ears that are open to hear what we need to hear, and that it might shape the way we think and the way we live. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, open our wills for our our good, your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are um, difficult words to read, and it's extremely difficult even to preach this chapter of, of Scripture because we see such darkness and such evil in these, these verses. Uh, and, and I suppose we, we, what we see here is the evil of godless humanity, and it's on display for us in Genesis 34. A number of commentators point out the reason why these awful facts are shared with us. Because think about it, Moses could have shared any amount of stories uh, in this part of Scripture, but he chose to give us these details and a whole chapter full of them. Why? Why? Well, these details are given for good reason. The original hearers, remember, The original hearers were the Israelites en route from Egypt, where they were slaves, to Canaan, where they would be free. And when they got there, to Canaan, they would face the same common temptations that all of God's people in every era face. And we'll put them up for you here. First of all, God's people are always tempted to take a light view of God's Word and God's will for his people. Take a light view of God's word and God's will. For example, being the unique, holy people of God. That's God's will for you, for me, for us. It always has been. But God's people often don't want to be unique, and they don't want to be holy unto God. This chapter shows us the danger of ignoring this will of God And it shows us that there are lots of alternatives to being unique and to be holy. Lots of them. But it also shows us the consequences when we go down that route. That's the first common temptation. The second one is this. We take a light view of sin and a light view of human rebellion. 
a soft view of human rebellion. And so they, back then, and we, we, we can tolerate all kinds of things. We can tolerate, for instance, double-mindedness. And we can follow the world's example, for instance, in intermarriage or idolatry or materialism. The list goes on. Genesis 34 is brutal because Jacob took a light view of God's word and will, and he had a, took a light view of sin and human rebellion. That's why it is so brittle and godless. Now, some uh, preachers skip this chapter and go on to the next, but I think there's some very important lessons for us to learn. If most of Genesis 33 is a model to follow, you can be sure that Genesis 34 is a model to reject. But as Caleb prayed, I think it was Caleb, I think it was you, Caleb, there now, that this is Scripture, that this is God-breathed, that's profitable for us. This portion may be full of badness and madness, but it's for our good that we hear it, and we should sit up and listen. So last week, do you remember we thought about the righteous new man, Israel, a new name, and a new encounter with God? After wrestling with God, he was changed physically, now he had a limp, and he was changed spiritually he had in a new name, and this was a new beginning, and it all looked so good. And while the old Jacob was weak and proud and scheming, the new Jacob, Israel, his name, well, he had a godly strength, he had genuine humility, he had expressed gratitude. We learned about that last week. But within a very, very short period of time, the old Jacob returns. Do you remember we said, thought about last week? At the same time, the righteous and the sinner. What happened to the new man, Israel? Why did he become the old man, Jacob, so very easily and so very quickly? Well, we've got to remember a few things here. Ten years have passed since uh, the wrestling with God and the blessing and the change. Ten years, sadly, of backsliding. Ten years of double-mindedness, as James would call it. And so what we see here is the fruit of the old life on display. And we're not talking, therefore, of one moment of disobedience. We're talking here about a full disobedience, deliberate, ongoing disobedience. And it led to a landslide of evil that affected so many people, which threatened, actually, would you believe it, to destroy the very people of God, the very plan of God. Everything was at risk. And once again, we're, we're to see here, ignoring God brings nothing but confusion and collapse and ultimately utter chaos. And if you're listening carefully, you will know that there's one name not mentioned in the whole of Genesis 34. Can anybody guess what that name is? God. God's name is not mentioned once. Not once. There's lots about Jacob and his family. Lots about Shechem and the, the, the town and its inhabitants. But nothing about God. No interest in God. No listening to God. Not until chapter 35, verse 1, where God intervenes again to Jacob, which we'll look at next week. 
But what we see here is a story of godless living, the weight of sin, the ignoring of God, the need of grace. Now, if you know the story, and I know some of you are visitors here tonight, but we've been going through this, the, the stories here of, of, of Genesis um, about particularly Jacob in recent weeks. But chapter 33, verse 18, we're told that Jacob pitched his tent near Shechem, the town. Don't confuse that with the person called Shechem, who was the kind of prince of Shechem. He was also called Shechem. So he pitched his tent near Shechem, within sight of Shechem. And after deceiving Esau once again, this is where Jacob ended up living. Now, what did God, what had God told Jacob to do? He, he was go, to go to the promised land. I want you to go there and live, Jacob. And then, do you remember what Jacob promised God? I'm going to return to Bethel. So those two things were stated. So what did Jacob do? Well, he just about made it into, the, into Canaan, into the promised land. Just over the border, would you believe it? But he is over 20 miles away from Bethel. In other words, Jacob was half-hearted in his obedience. Just enough to kind of pass the test by the skin of his teeth but not enough to please God or to be safe in God's plans and purposes. And of course, we've said it before, half-hearted obedience or halfway obedience is disobedience. And it came from idolatry. It came from the idea of rejecting God, of dethroning God, saying, you know what, God, I know what you've said and I know what I've promised, but I know better and I'm going to do it my way. And so he steps into the land kind of half keeping his promise or a half obedience to the command of God, but he looks to people to satisfy his needs. He looks to people to satisfy his needs. No waiting on God, no obeying God, no keeping the promises made to God. And of course, we, we, could, we could say, oh, how could he do such a thing? How could he do such a thing? But can I dare point the finger? Oh, naughty Jacob. I can't. And I don't think you can either. Because I hold lightly to the things of God and I hold tightly to the things of the world. I get it wrong and so do you. And there's too much of Jacob in me. But for Jacob, such behavior produced consequences. And of course, the same is true for you and me. If you live a certain way now, you can be sure that 20 years down the line, or maybe 10 years, or even maybe a year, there will be consequences. And many of them, of course, are not at all good. So we're going to see the old Jacob again here in Genesis 34, and that's not nice. God was saying to Jacob, I want you to maintain a unique character, holiness, and I want you to have a clear identity as the people of God. And Jacob did neither. Neither holy nor having a clear identity. And this is the danger we all face in our Canaan as we're surrounded by our Canaanites in the world. Now, at this stage, Dinah would have been about 15 or 16 years of age. Trust me not. Um, it's been well worked out. Most of her brothers, of course, would have been older. They were strong. They were volatile. And Jacob... Well, we're going to see a very, very bad picture of fatherhood here in this chapter. He was a pathetic father, basically, 
a poor leader, a useless shepherd. And, and from you know, the heights of chapter 33, where we see him loving his family and loving Esau and loving God, we see that in 33, to basically we see him loving himself in 34. What a, a change. So, so what does that look like? Well, self-focus. That's basically his major problem. He was self-focused. Absolutely no concern for his daughter, um, Dinah. Verse 1, now Dinah, a daughter of Leah, uh, the, the, sorry, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the woman of the land. Now, that seems innocent enough, but she should not have gone there because the woman of the land is a phrase that basically says the wild woman of the land. Do I need to spell it out? Not the kind of company she should have kept. She should have known, and certainly Jacob should have known, that there was a history of violence within that city, and it was a highly sexualized city. Not the best company. To roam with the woman of the land was dangerous, as so it turned out. But let's not blame Dinah. I mean, she was a teenage girl after all. It was Jacob who had settled his family near the town. And probably, I mean, Dinah probably had watched her dad and her brothers go into the city to do their business and to do other kinds of things we can only guess. And she simply followed their example. And we also know, of course, that Leah, her mom, was not loved by Jacob. And possibly, we're, we're kind of guessing here, but possibly Dinah was neglected by Jacob. But what is clear, this adolescent young girl needed a dad. And she didn't have one. Jacob failed his daughter. And even if she had been a rebellious lass, you know, even if she just went a wee bit wild, there's absolutely no evidence that Jacob intervened to protect her or to stop her. Not once. No concern. Why? Because he was so wrapped up in himself. We're going to see that throughout this chapter. All the evidence points to a self-focused father. No concern, no compassion, no tenderness. And in verse 2 we read, When Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her, and violated her. Basically, that's rape. The prince of the city saw, took, violated. Unrestrained lust. Not her fault. It's his sin. But Jacob the dad did nothing. Nothing. He's so wrapped up in himself. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. What? Now, we, we might understand that he may not have known exactly what to do, but the fact is he did nothing. He didn't even hug the girl. 
He didn't comfort her. Not a word. He kept quiet about it. I mean, this is supposed to be the shepherd of God's flock, and he's being a bad shepherd. Just silence. Do you know, the only time actually Jacob speaks in this whole chapter is right at the end in, in verse 30, when then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join force against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. You see the emphasis there? Me, 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 me. He wasn't angry that his daughter had been raped. He wasn't angry that his sons then went on a a murder spree. He wasn't angry that they misused the sacrament of circumcision. No. (laughs) He got angry because of how it might affect him and his reputation. So this year was not anything about the glory of God, not about the good of his family, but only his own safety. He's so self-focused. Now, I mean, back to, to verse 7, for instance. Now, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened, and they were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Grief and fury. Listen, anger in such circumstances is not wrong. In fact, it would have been wrong not to be angry. But sadly, in the rest of the story, there's little thought of the evil of sin. There's little thought of the goodness of God's will and God's purposes. But basically, when there's no God, there's, there's just chaos, isn't there? Opposite chaos. When there's no focus on him, no listening to him, no living according to his statutes, what we have is spiraling out of control trouble. And it comes often, and it becomes worse when, when leaders like Jacob, the, the dad in the story, the wise one, the one who knew God, when he would not act properly, it gets worse. Jacob's problem was self-focus. But there's another problem too, we might call it indifference. I mean, it's simply hard to fathom what happens, an appalling lack of of oversight and authority. He doesn't say much. We've already mentioned that. He doesn't do anything. We've already mentioned that. Here's how one commentator put it. Dinah is, the, is, is an, an object of passion to Shechem, a bargaining chip to Hamar, a source of moral outrage on behalf of his brothers or her brothers, and passive indifference by her father. And instead of being a dad and a leader and a shepherd, you know what? He joins in the, in the cover-up. Oh, let, let, let's just deal with us. You know, we'll sit down and we'll chat this through. We'll make an agreement. We'll make a treaty. No confession of sin, no repentance, just a business deal. A treaty that will suit all sides. Let's cover it all up. How low can a man get? Dinah's life has been destroyed and it results in a a tribal treaty that basically would destroy 
the distinctiveness of God's people by intermarriage. How could Jacob do such a thing? Dinah, broken and abused, but as long as the rest of us can live happily ever after, so be it. That's his attitude, basically. Jacob knew the promises and plans of God. He knew the desires of God to be a distinct people, to be in relationship with God for the benefit of all the nations, the promises down from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. Very clear, but Jacob was happy to be yoked to the world, to get into bed, in a sense, with pagans. He's far from God here, isn't he? And he's far from God's plan here in these verses. And so the deal was offered there, verse, verse 8. But Hamar said to them, my son Shechem has his um, heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Uh, give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. And you can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price of the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. This treaty would bring mutual benefits. But when Hamer and Shechem seek to sell the idea to their own people, it's a slightly different slant. I don't know if you picked that up there. And you see in verse, I mean, verse 23, where he says, won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? We'll benefit. It's not everybody benefiting it. It'll be us. He, he's uh, quite shrewd, isn't he? He's like a, a politician, isn't he? can say one thing to one group and another thing to another group and everybody's happy and nobody's happy. But you see, in doing so, as he kind of did the political thing between the two groups, he thinks he has sold the plan to Jacob and his family and also to his own tribe. But little did he know what was really going on, the scheme that Dinah's brothers had dreamt up, verse 13 to 17. Let's read it again. Because their sister had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. I wonder where they learned that deceit from. From their dad. Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to him, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we take our sister and go. Again, Jacob, the leader, remains passively uh, indifferent. He uh, allows his children to take control. He allows his sons to deceive Hamar and Shechem. And, of course, he allows his boys to misuse the sacrament of circumcision. We know how important that is to God's people. Uh, first of all, to, to Abraham and then to Isaac 
It's the sign of the forgiveness of sin by Yahweh, the sign of entry into the people of God, the sign of admission into God's family, the sacrament to receive by faith. So the sons of Jacob took what should have been a token of blessing and made it into a weapon of revenge. They misused the sign of circumcision, robbing it of all its redemptive meaning. And they took what was that beautiful sign of circumcision and made it a sign of destruction and a means of deception. Of course, both sides, in a sense, misused it. I mean, Shechem, to satisfy his lust for Dinah, he was prepared to go through it. And the sons, to satisfy their lust for revenge, he was, they were prepared to go through it. But see the irony of verse 23 when they said their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours, it didn't quite work out like that, did it? The promised great windfall came to nothing because they lost everything. They, they said they were going to gain everything. In fact, they lost everything. A, a bit like temptation, isn't it, of sin, where sin promises us everything but actually takes from us everything. And so we have, like father, like son, Jacob, modeling deceit and trickery. This plan works off very, very well. Verse 24, all the men who went out of the city get agreed with Hamar and the son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male they put Hamar and the son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. With rash and unbridled anger, they killed every man incapacitated by their surgery. As one commentator said, isn't it so very common that we become like the people we despise and hate? We become like the people we despise and hate if we do not respond in God's ways. Such reckless vengeance and such rage-filled violence. Every meal killed, everything plundered. And Jacob, well, he's still silent, isn't he? How could he remain silent in the midst of such evil? But of course, often we do the same, don't we? We turn a blind eye to evil around us until, of course, it comes knocking at our door. And that when it came knocking at his door, he's, he's concerned Verse 30, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and parasites, the people living. Driven by fear, with a deep focused concern for his own welfare and, and for the fear of retaliation. He's concerned and he speaks up far, far too late. 
So chapter 34 is a gruesome chapter, isn't it? A story of failure. A failure to love God, a failure to listen to God, a failure to follow after God, a failure of leadership, yes, by Jacob over his family and for his family and over the covenant people of God. I wonder, as we sort of come to conclusion tonight, how do you react when you get to the end of Genesis 34? I mean, do you say, wow, I really wish Moses had decided not to put that story in. What's going on in your head as you react now? Maybe you're just a bit numb or shocked. Can you see what's actually happened? Can you see when, that when there's no God? Show us the day when such sin will be wiped out. Show us our hero, our savior. Because everybody in the story is affected by sin, every single one. I mean, Dinah, the victim of the rape, and then Shechem and his evil actions, and Jacob and his indifference, and Jacob's sons and their act of deception and murder and plunder. Everyone, in a sense, is affected by sin here. We need the Lord. We need Jesus. And we should cry out, show us, give us, reveal to us a Savior who actually can save And of course, God does. Because next week, we're going to see the first verse of chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel. You see, 34 is a godless chapter and evil rules. And in a a godless world, sin controls. And that's what's happening around us even today in our Canaan, with the Canaanites living the way they think is right. But the good news is this, God does not give up on Jacob, and God does not give up on Jacob's sons. God does not reject Jacob. God actually preserves him and blesses him and gives him another opportunity to respond. Why? Because of grace because of undeserved goodness. And God wants to show us tonight, Grace, whatever our situation, wherever we might have failed, we need to learn from this chapter, learn from the 10 years of Jacob's double-mindedness, the 10 years of self-focus, the 10 years when he forgot about God. And we've got to make sure we don't make the same mistake. We can't afford to make the same mistake. I appeal to dads here. And leaders, we can't afford to make these kinds of mistakes. The consequences are great. The pain is awful. See, the way to be the new man, the way not to be the old man, is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus every day. In everything, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because he's the savior we need and he's the savior we have. And of course, we live in the post-cross period, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, we have with us so many blessings. Although we might be little Jacobs, that means we're not above how he lived, we're not above how, uh, or what he did, we must see ourselves, I think, in this Genesis 34 story as, as a kind of Jacob, but despite our failure, we have a Savior who comes and says, listen, I will give you an opportunity again and again and again.
It's called grace. Undeserved goodness. And for that to happen, of course, Jesus was battered and cut and murdered to become, in a sense, the greater Jacob, the good shepherd, the friend of sinners, the true leader, and we should fix our eyes upon him. And so we have a choice, in a sense, as individuals and as families, even as a church and a community, godless self-focus and double-mindedness, which is the easy route, with all the evil that flows from that, we can choose that, or we can choose the loving Savior to follow and trust. His name is Jesus, and we receive all the blessings that flow from that. At the beginning of our service, we, um, we quoted this verse in our call to worship. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Be in Christ, be new, and don't go back to being the old. The old's gone. Jacob tried to go back. He wanted to go back. But that was wrong. That was evil. That was sin. The old is gone. The new has come. Let's live in Christ. Let's live for Christ and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Christ we're new creations and the old has gone and the new has come and we're thankful for that. So we pray you will enable your people here tonight to understand what it means to be new, what it means to be in Christ. And may we never, ever choose to go back or try to go back to what is old and dead and dangerous. Lord, speak into our hearts and may this word be a warning to us so that we might indeed take seriously your good grace and your beautiful love, that we might be a people committed to your word, to your will, and to your view of sin and rebellion. We ask for help to understand these things. In Jesus' name, amen.